0: Well, I've always been a rebel and and I grew up thinking differently and it was always hard for me to put words around that or to find the people who saw that in me that I was that my skill was looking at things differently. There was not a huge demand for that skill and so people didn't recognize it. But when I was working and I was working with young people, I began to really see how they would approach problems in the world differently. When I wanted information, I would go online. I would no, I would call somebody because from my background, I would make a phone call when I wanted information. When they wanted information, they would post it and they would get an answer much more quickly. It would be from many more sources. It would often be better. And I. so that was my first aha, and I started observing more closely and I said, well, yeah, they don't really want to come to work. They want to work at home. And yeah, they really like their things faster. And yeah, they prefer online to paper and uh, a whole lot of things that said, Oh, maybe there's something that we can generalize here. And the general and at the same time, there were words floating around like uh, native speakers of the digital language I remember. Uh, and so I put it together as digital natives. And I remember the conversation where we said, well, if if they're natives, the others are immigrants. And we talked about that analogy. And so I wrote in 2001, I published an article called uh, Digital Natives, Digital Immigrants in a very obscure journal and online. And then one day I get an email from the Gifted Children's Association of, of New Zealand. And they the email said, hi, Mark, we read your article in the newsletter of the Gifted Children's Association of Tasmania. Can we republish it? And that was my epiphany. That was when I saw that you were not limited anymore to who lived around you or what country you were from or whatever it was. People around the world were looking for ideas, were looking for for new people to connect with and could do this, and that is the new world we're in. That is one of the huge hallmarks of the new world we're in, the the decline of of localism.
1: It's, it's an incredible story um, of how that kind of took off and it and it captures what you were talking about, right? It was even the way um, that information spread is, is exactly what you were trying to capture, is that there is a new world and there are new ways of talking about it and exploring it.
0: And what's interesting today is so many people don't see it. And uh, adults who grew up in a very different 20th century, uh, I'm one of them, but I saw it. And you saw it because you named your company after it. And so, uh, but when a teacher stands up in front of a, a class of 30 kids now, they still see them as little usses, as what we were powerless 50, 100 years ago. What they actually are looking at are people who are very powerful, who have incredible capabilities, and who are increasingly all connected to each other. Those are very different people, and you can't do the same things with them and expect good results.
1: Yeah, and a lot of your time has been focused on um, on young people, on education, but you've you've seen these digital natives grow up. There and now there's many in the workforce. And you go to these conferences, you're consulting with businesses. Um, how have you what from your view, what have you noticed uh with digital natives as they go to the workforce? Do you notice that there it's still a lot of the same, even though you've got uh people who think differently, or do you see that the workforce is now changing because of this?
0: Well, it's not really changing enough, in my view. Uh, it's there are a lot of frustrated young people out there. We see much more job movement than we ever saw before. We uh, there are a lot of people, and again, this is generalizing, and maybe in a you know in an upper class context, but the but we see people who say, "No, I'm not going to work for that." We at one point. Uh, people said i'm not going to work in a cubicle and the company had to change the cubicles uh, or they said i want to work from home and the company has to say well you yeah, can and look at how much trouble they're having bringing them back to the big companies now because it's so much better for them so we are seeing changes we will continue to see a lot of changes but we will also see continue to see a lot of resistance to changes and the reason we'll see that is because the way adults have dealt with young people all through history is control they said we will control you we'll control you through parenting we'll control you through culture we'll control you through education and schooling and the until we give you permission to grow up and be one of us and when you join a company you start at the very bottom we don't give you a lot of responsibility. We make you, you know, a newbie and an intern. And that's what the situation is in most of the world and in most places. That is just now starting to change. So places like Google will let you in if you're a smart guy or girl without a college degree. They will they will look at what you've accomplished. And that to me is the big change, it's from learning in advance and knowledge to accomplishment. And that's why I'm not for um, a lot of things that people are, are for like, um, I'm losing the word here, but I'll start over again when I remember it. Um, I'm not for competencies because competencies, first of all, it's a made up word by HR, but second of all, it says these are supposedly the things you can do. But the question, the real question, is what can you do? What have you done? And the best predictor of future accomplishment is past accomplishment. That's a great line that I once heard a guy from IBM say. And it is absolutely true. And so what we need to do, in my view, is start young people accomplishing from the earliest days. There are plenty of things kids can do as early as, as three years old. And there is video evidence of this, uh, where they can change the world for the better for themselves, in their families, in their communities.
1: Yeah, it's uh as a parent with two kids, um, that's the that's the lens I look at all of this with. I I think about how they see the world differently, what they're experiencing. Um as well as somebody who runs a team and how you know what we do is in a very quick uh quickly changing industry and how do we stay fresh and we've always sort of gravitated towards people who um are self-learners but also hopefully good at unlearning i think that's as important as being able to self-teach is be willing to unlearn the things that may be a little less relevant um well, good so you. Good, so all good. of the things you're talking about are are relevant i think in, all parts of the world, both young and old. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's exempt from this.
0: Good for you, and I agree with you. And the interesting thing is that it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle for me. I have a 17-year-old. I spent a lot of time um, asking him and, and forcing him, in a sense, to look people into the eye, in the eye when he met them, adults. It doesn't matter for his peers. They don't look each other in the eye. But for adults, it matters. For my generation, it matters. So how much do we need to train the kids for the world we grew up in, which will still exist for a little bit of time, and how much do we have to prepare them for the world that they will live in that we don't really know very much about? And that is why our generation is in a tough struggle right now. We, in the past, the world didn't change very much from generation to generation, changed a little bit, but mostly the things that were true and wisdom and wise in one generation would be useful in the next generation. And so that's why we had schools and that's why we had parenting and culture and all that. That is what's changing so rapidly. And what's changing is that things that were super important in the 20th century are just totally unimportant to young people in the 21st century and we don't know exactly what those are yet how to deal with that how to how to do what's necessary for the young people my sense is that what is what the young people need that they didn't need before is accomplishment and They didn't need it because they couldn't do it. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the attitudes. We kept telling them they can't, they can't, they can't wait till you grow up. And so now everybody walks around with all the world's knowledge in their pockets, not everybody, but almost everybody, and soon everybody, with all the world's knowledge in their pockets and with connections to almost everybody else on the planet. That we just don't know how to how to maximize that, how to use that. We still go to school locally. We still work locally. We still do so many things locally that we would be much better off doing globally.
1: Yeah, as you talk about this, I I can't help it. The way I kind of envision this as you're discussing it is sort of the old way is um, top-down power structures, traditional power structures, held by few, and it is, uh, you're either excluded from that or it is a long road um, to get near it. Whereas now we live in a world that's uh, new power structures, everybody's connected. It is a completely different approach. It's more bottom-up, and, and you can do things far sooner than you ever could have in the past. I mean, you can connect with people who are interested in that. You can get more information about that. If you set your mind to it, there's fewer things standing in your way. It's a completely different world. And and there's this weird sort of coexistence of both. And there's, like you said, there's this translation between both of, hey, you should look that person in the eye. And, you know, maybe in 20 years, nobody will be saying that anymore. But it's what do we hold on to? What do we forget? And I feel like that's where, uh, Mark, people like you who are rebellious or contrarians or looking at it through a different lens or frame are very useful for us to be like, oh yeah, that is that is happening right now. Maybe we didn't see it before until someone kind of pointed it out, then we can wrestle with it and what that means to us.
0: That is the key issue of our time. What do we keep and what do we let go of and change and move to something new? And another way to put that is we are becoming symbiotic with the new technologies that we have invented. They're not just tools, They're becoming new parts of human beings. And the quicker we learn about that and integrate that and don't cut them off, don't take them away. Taking away a kid's uh, cell phone is cutting off their hand or cutting off a body part. But that is a very hard thing for people to integrate. They still want to see it as competition and not symbiosis. And so that move to symbiosis and the struggle to to accept a new world is really the, the most important um, struggle, I think, of our time. And it's happening everywhere, families and companies
1: and cultures.
0: And we need to uh, think about it and get better
1: at it. Yeah, you wrote about that in your book, Empowered. And when I read that um, that section, I had a hard time with it, too, especially as a parent with you a know, 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. I had a hard time accepting that. But it made me think of something I remember years ago, just similar, I guess, but I was getting into mountain biking and a friend of mine said, the goal is not for you to go out on the trail and it's you and your bike. It's that you and your bike are one thing He goes, that's when you actually start moving well. And so whenever you were talking about this, I was like, I think that means, I think that's a little comparative, right? Like if you accept this is just part of who I am and you're not trying to always separate yourself then you might be able to move through the world in a, in a different way, at a different clip, at a different speed, in different ways. And uh, whether you accept it or not might influence that.
0: I love that. Thank you very much for that analogy. I will use it uh, with people. It It is absolutely right on and spot on. And the fact that that we want to separate these things, and there's this, uh, if you read Yuval Noah Harari, who I like a lot, he talks about uh, that we are, we have a religion now of humanism, that that is the, uh, the main religion in the world. And I work with lots of people, especially in Silicon Valley, who think, oh, we have to go back to being human and we're going to lose what's being human and technology is going to be biased and take all sorts of things and go in new directions. I reject that. I think that being human is changing. I think that being human just like being a bike rider is integrating yourself with the technology that extends you and that that makes you a more powerful human and not a not a less powerful human not a dependent human but a more powerful symbiotic hybrid and that's I try to promote that that's
1: not something that people accept easily yeah what do you think would happen if we did accept it
0: I think we'd go much further, much faster. I think that it it would really be, imagine if school, for example, were about, well, you've got these incredible capabilities in your pocket. What can you do with them? And a great example is Greta Thunberg. I use that all the time. She really wants to do something. She's a very uh, motivated person to get the world to do something about climate change, and I think rightfully so. So where did she start? She started in the 20th century. She started demonstrating in the rain in front of the Swedish parliament. Well, I did that, and people have done demonstrations for centuries. They didn't get her very far. She then said, okay, let me move a little bit further forward. Let me get some publicity. So publicity is also 20th century. So she spoke in front of the UN, and she spoke in front of the um, the World Economic Forum, and she got a lot of publicity. That didn't get much change. So then she said, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm a 21st century person. She was born, I think, in 2005, and, or 2003. And the Uh, So she said, let me organize people online. And so she did, and she formed something called Fridays for Future. And she did social media, and she organized some strikes in certain countries, day-long strikes from school in certain countries. And that was a great start. But here's what Greta is capable of doing, I think. If she wanted to, and she really wanted to promote change, She could organize every single kid in the world, starting with those online, but moving out, to go on strike permanently from school until something meaningful happened related to climate change. And would kids do it? My guess is a lot of them would because they don't really wanna be in school anyway. Would the parents get upset? Oh, yes, they would. They couldn't go to work. They couldn't do all these things. So suddenly there would be this huge, enormous new pressure for change because of her and her 21st century capabilities. And I think that that is the kind of example that I will come over and over again, will come more and more because she can, uh, we have a great person to emulate an Elon Musk you can think whatever you want about him uh all the things he does but he is the world's best engineer and he is the only single person who has been able to mount a response to problems like uh, you know the world has got real problems in survival let's go out uh, let's go to space he knows how to do it by funding cars to fund spaceships so he's that I think he's a harbinger But he's, but the other young people I think will be, if not equally, they will be similarly powerful. And and they hopefully will be, will also get guidance from Gandhi and other ethical sides as well. Um, but But that is a power that just didn't exist in the world. It certainly didn't exist in young people and, if we don't move from the, you can't, to the, yes, I can get out of my way, we're gonna be in trouble and we're gonna go much, much more slowly.
1: Yeah, it, I think as you walk through that example, there's some who would bristle even at the idea of what you're talking about. and say, oh, that's so radical. I have a hard time seeing that or I hope that doesn't happen. But stranger things have happened and it's certainly possible, right? It, there's, There's really, if that idea catches fire, it's gonna, it could go there's no there's weirder things that have caught on than that and I think it illustrates a point that again there's just a new connected world there is new power that maybe we don't want to admit exists but it does exist and when we talk about the translation between sort of power structures and old worlds and new worlds it doesn't go one way it goes both ways Um, you have to respect what's uh, coming about not just what has has been
0: a great analogy is religion. A great analogy is religion. That that some people had this new idea, and uh, they wrote about it, and they got together, and suddenly it it it's half the world that now has accepted it. It's time to move to a a something new because the world is moving with us or without us. The we're in a universe that evolves that does what it does. We have some minor effects on it. Uh, but the but it's moving and if we don't move with it we're gonna lose i don't think we'll we'll die but we will not have what we had in the 20th century
1: I, and last time we talked i mentioned that as i was reading your last book that there were ideas in there that were so sort of fresh and new to me that i had two reactions one was i don't know i don't know about this and uh but i appreciate the fact that i'm now wrestling with it and trying to figure out how i feel about it and then there's other ideas i'm like oh yeah that's never would have thought of that but okay i can definitely see that going through there and you start thinking through do i agree with that do i like to see that is there ways to encourage that so you kind of have this and i think i'm sure it's a lot of fun for you too uh to be able to kind of reframe things for people and help them sort of open their eyes to a possibility that they may or may not like or may be valuable to for them to understand as you are going to these conferences or consulting with groups who who's who are the people who are coming to you and say, "Hey, help us reframe this problem or um or who gets the most benefit, I think, out of your sort of consultation whenever you're working with them?
0: Mostly they're individuals. and when when it works best is they are individuals in charge of organizations who want to say, uh, "I want to give my people fresh perspective." A great example is something called the Commonwealth of Learning, uh, which is, uh, the learning heads of all the people in the British Commonwealth, and they come together in regular meetings. And the woman who runs that has brought me in several times uh, because she said, uh, you really shake things up. You're a breath of fresh air. I'm going to take what you, the words that you just said a few seconds ago because that's what I do. Somebody suggested a title for my next book. He made me think. And that is what I do. That People ask me, what do people say? about you and I said that's those are the two things they say he made me think and in the best cases he inspired me and to think about things in new ways therefore do things in new ways but I'm always I always look for positives I'm not I'm not somebody who does this in any way in a malicious way I may do it sometimes in a snarky way but but it's never malicious and the 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 aim is always to say If you see this in this way and you do this, it will help. And the place where I probably got the most help in doing this is the Boston Consulting Group. And I was extremely fortunate. I'm a kid from the housing projects in New York City. And I got to go to some very nice schools, including Harvard Business School. And then I got recruited uh, by BCG because I went well. And they didn't know what to do with me because I had no business background. I had no real interest in business, but I really could see new perspectives and I really could reframe. And so I had more interviews before they hired me than anybody in the history of BCG. And so, and they finally hired me and good for them. And I I, I appreciate that. And what they helped teach me was to look at a whole industry in a different way and say, what's going on here? Why is this happening? To look at companies in a new way, why are you doing this? And out of that, I have an interesting rule that, uh, that your listeners might appreciate. When you hire a new employee, if you're a business owner or supervisor, you have at most two weeks, maybe one, to ask them the question, what do we do here that's really stupid? Because after two weeks, they will say, no, that's how we do it, that's how it is. And so if you if you don't take advantage of those fresh eyes, uh, especially if you have smart people that are coming in, uh, then you have missed a huge, huge opportunity.
1: I, I love that. Um, uh, we do a little something like that at our organization. If we are trying to figure something out in terms of like how to market ourselves or talk about ourselves, and we bring in somebody from the outside, Usually in, in the early days, I will say, hey, I really want to take advantage of your naivety that you, you don't really know us yet. Tell us, how would you say this? How would you do that type of thing? And then about three months in, like you said, they're part of us. Uh, we've co-opted their brain and now they think like us. And so now they're they're of little use. They think like us now. So we, it, we try to do the amazing? same thing. It's yeah. amazing.
0: And that, what, that's, in a sense, that's the ideal reason to bring in consultants. People used to say, you know, why should we pay Boston Consulting Group all this money? We have experts, we have all these people. But it's not, expertise is overrated. That's, that's what Kevin Kelly said, I love that line. It's expertise is knowledge about what worked in the past. That's the definition of expertise. What we, and that was useful when things didn't change. But when things change rapidly, expertise about the past can be a handicap. And the to recognize that, especially in a society that that uh, you know gives expertise great uh, rewards, that is very, it's, it's very difficult to do. So one thing that I have done uh, for many years is I, I hold student panels as part of my talks. and The I ask them for students. I don't bring them. I say, give me your students. They want to give me the best ones, and I say, hopefully, I give me the most outspoken ones. And I ask them questions. And I, you know, what do you like? What do you think? What do you think of your parents? How much do you love your pet? Have you ever found a teacher uh, that really uh, got into you or that really saw you? Uh, What are the most things? What do you think uh, is not working? Not what should we do because they don't exactly know, but. Really, how do they feel about what they're going through? And now I'm going to do that with employees, and it's very interesting because somebody just said to me, "Well, they'll probably be really afraid to talk on stage in front of their peers, especially if they're new hires, about what they see that's really stupid." So they might we might need to finesse that with other ways of doing that, with inter you know interviews online or other kinds of things, but. But, and that's unfortunate because that's the pressure that prevents change uh, that, uh, and I've had people walk out. I had a, a, a history professor walk out when I talked about doing new things. He said, oh, those who don't understand history are bound to repeat it. And he stormed out of the room. Or uh, I once quoted Angus King, the Senator who said, our kids should sue us for the education we give them. And the teacher got up and stormed out of the room. I'm not a criminal. <laughs> you know? And so people do not take this easily or lightly. And change is hard. There are three things that I've written about. There's a formula for change, which is the, from some uh, consultant at uh, Booz Allen, I think once upon a time. You can find it online. He says, for change to happen, you need three elements. And you need them all because they're multiplicative not additive the first one is you need dissatisfaction with the current system the second one is you need some examples of something different but the third one is you need a vision of where we're going and where we want to go that people can share as as you all know harari talks about a shared vision And from my perspective, we have the first in spades, we have plenty of the second, we have pockets of everything, but we lack the vision. That's what I see myself as helping provide.